Welcome to the Green Lectionary Podcast, a production of Creation Justice Ministries. The Green Lectionary is a conversation on scripture through the lens of creation justice. My name is Derek Weston, and today we'll be looking at a text for the final week of the season of creation, a time to renew our relationship with our creator and all of creation through celebration, conversation, and commitment. For this episode, I'm joined by three guests. Wilson Dickinson, author of the recently released Singing the Psalms with My Son, Praying and Parenting for a Healed Planet. Deborah Reinstra, author of Refugia Faith, Seeking Hidden Shelters, Ordinary Wonders, and the Healing of the Earth. And Katie Kuddle-Steinberg, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Daytona Beach, and co-author of Holy Leading, Thoughts, Meditations, and Practices for Whole Self-Leading. Join us as we look at Exodus 17 through the lens of creation justice. Let the songs of the water, land, and sky resound Cause together we're all bound Within these pages There's always new life to be found Okay, our passage for this week comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? All right, friends. So where is creation in this story? Well, you know, I think one of the things that comes up for me early, and thanks for the invitation, Deborah, to start us off, um, is the thinking that it's up to the humans to make the natural resource. Um, you know, and I think I kind of focus on this in our last conversation that what's what's humanity's role in all of this as far as it's how the earth provides and these kind of things. And it even harkens back to me thinking of Genesis. It was sort of like in this wonderful place where everything was provided and, you know, that's not good enough. Um, and then we come into Exodus, we've got this issue of folks being enslaved and having, you know, no freedoms and none of the things that they needed or, or what they, the bare minimums of what they needed provided. Um, and they're offered freedom from all that and then end up complaining again, you know, that there's not what we need and it's not here. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of resonate as a pastor with Moses on this, like, Wait, why? Why is this my problem? Wait, hold on. <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm supposed to be uh, the magic water person as well that uh, takes care of all the things. So, yeah. Without saying too much to start us off, I do think that what comes up for me is kind of what's what's humanity's role in this? What's God's role in this? Um, in our well-being, in our sustenance, and um, and where's the role of of faith and trust? Because I always feel like, you know, whenever I feel like I need to complain 
<laughs> to God or or to anybody. Um, it it sort of feels like if I had just been a little more patient, the answer was already coming. The mm-hmm. the sustenance, the the you know, was already being provided. The universe, the world, creation was already providing what I needed. If I could have just been just a little more patient, but it's mm-hmm. it's not within me as uh, as human. So. Those are kind of just the the beginnings of inklings that come up for me. Yeah, I love that. On the one hand, this the story is so real that the people are complaining. I mean, it takes them like four minutes after the Exodus to start complaining. And I love that that's so real. And Moses is so exasperated and frustrated. And to be fair, they need water. That's life. This is a physical need. It's real. Nature is not always hospitable. It's a very real struggle. And on the other hand, there's some tension because the story is clearly interpreted by itself and then later in the New Testament as these are the Israelites being bad. You know, they, they should not be testing God and complaining. So I, I kind of enjoy the tension in that story because on the one hand, it's legit. They need water. And on the other hand, they need to trust. Yeah, the... The, the thing that keeps on coming up for me in the story is this voice of complaint, but also like this voice of just survival, right? And and it feels like that the the people in the story that aren't, aren't named maybe are, you know, it's it's the everyday Israelites, maybe even the women, right? Because the the pushback is about you know we're out we're out here and the children and the animals and us are gonna die of thirst. Um, and and that figure, you know, and, and I guess Derek's question about where's creation, I really drew my attention to wilderness, right? So, you know, they're they're out in the wilderness, and and what is this figure of the wilderness? Mm. Um, and which made me think of Dolores Williams, the, the the womanist theologian, and she has this great line where she says that too often we're focused on the liberation of the Exodus, and and we lose sight of the wilderness struggle. Right. So, so, mm-hmm. so the struggle that we've already kind of lifted up, up that, you know, it's of the Israelites, right? These are freed slaves and they're just thirsty. Um, but, but one of the things that comes out of this without going on and, you know, completely rehearsing what Williams has to say, one of the things that comes out of this, I think, is the shift from liberation, right, which has us look at these kind of spectacular events to wilderness struggle really centers, at least you know, what Williams says, it centers survival intelligence and visionary capacity, mm-hmm. right? So, so looking at this space of wilderness, right? So, and and seeing a certain kind of wilderness, and I guess maybe we can talk about different ways of understanding what that even is. I think brings to the to for, to the fore a different kind of action, especially a different kind of action when we're thinking about um, how to address issues of creation justice, right? So, it's not necessarily all the spectacular stuff of liberation. But it's also the kind of the everyday tangle and communal activity of survival intelligence and visionary capacity. I love that. This is a literary thought and maybe just a silly one, but these stories always remind me a little bit of the sequence in the middle of the Odyssey, the travels of Odysseus. I call that the Never Never Land sequence where things get weird and it's he's sort of off the map of real Greece and the Mediterranean, and it's hard to pinpoint. And I think the same is true of some of the the, um, milestones or landmarks in these wilderness stories. It 
it kind of becomes this weird never never land sequence and really remarkable stuff goes down <laughs> so it's not the big historical exodus event but it's these little moments of like quasi miracle magic stuff and you know you're in the world of metaphorical interpretation you know from the point of view of a modern reader you know you know you're in that world when you're in these never never land sequences so i think we have to grapple with god's provision and the role of trust and the reality of physical need um, in this passage and the way you highlighted that wilson too brought up for me um this the struggle and i there's so much struggle as we look through scripture there's so much struggle as we think about human life there's so much struggle as we think about you know the context in which these people were and it it just begs this really hard question for me about is struggle necessary in some way it is struggle part of what it means to be human or you know i, I read a lot of richard Rohr, and and some of what i've been reading lately he talks about the the ways that struggle and love are intertwined um the ways that suffering and love are intertwined and it's it's feels so dangerous and scary for me to talk about because um it it almost feels like unless i'm talking specifically about my own struggles it can feel like diminishing of of the struggles of other people's but it just it really begs for me to to want to think about what is the role of struggle in creation what is the role of struggle in humanity and how is that part of essentially what it means to be human and and be in the human divine relationship as well? Um, because the reality is we're sitting here analyzing this, but you know, let's let's say this is a literal historical kind of idea. We don't know how much they were struggling. We don't know how thirsty they were. Were they really about to die? Were they just whiny? You know, like and <laughs> it can be interpreted any any number of those ways, and. Um, but I think the reality is that it doesn't actually matter how thirsty you are when you feel thirsty. Um, it doesn't matter if your suffering is as great as somebody else's suffering, or if I can measure it in some way and then apply it to other people or some, you know, it's just like the suffering is happening. You know, they're expressing mm -hmm. that the suffering is happening and, and how do we interact and respond? And when it's wilderness too, there's something about wilderness that makes me feel like this is creation groaning in a way too. This is not the, you know, the, the promised land. This is not the lush garden of Eden as, as it's described. So there's, I don't know, there's lots of suffering I'm starting to pick up. So I appreciate you highlighting some of that um, struggle piece. Well, that's what the word Israel means, struggles with God. So there's a sense in which that struggle is foundational to these people's identity. And by a kind of inheritance, our identity too is people of faith. Our, our job is engagement and that engagement is not always um, calm and easy. It's often a struggle. Everyone is thirsty in the wilderness and the wilderness is just a place where humans are decidedly not in charge. Um, it's not designed for humans. It's designed for other purposes. And that, that's the, the, the theater of struggle with God where these people have to learn a different way of engaging with their God. Well, and to to continue to rehearse some stuff from Dolores Williams, she she has some good good lines about the wilderness as a place of struggle, right? Because she she wants to contrast a vision of of wilderness that kind of like the American pioneer vision, right, where the wilderness is a place that is savage and needs to be civilized, 
or it's a place that's idle and needs to be made productive. Right? That's that's one account of wilderness. And that already came up. Katie, I was already talking about natural resources, right? That's kind of that outlook. There's then there's the rom romantic European response to that, which is a direct pushback, right? Which which says that what the wilderness is is it's something that's pristine, it's something that's primitive, and so we go out there as individuals, and we go out there as individuals to experience some kind of solitude, right? And, and I think that kind of specter looms over a lot of environmental conversations, especially in white communities in the United States. But then there's also this kind of black understanding of the wilderness, or African American, I guess I should say understanding of the wilderness that is it, it's the wilderness is a place of refuge right so talking about kind of antebellum era slaves escape to the wilderness um but then there's also this kind of like reconstruction post-reconstruction experience of, of the wilderness also as a space of struggle and trial hmm. struggle and trial of you know kind of of this kind of religious experience right so 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 there's there is this understanding of the wilderness where the wilderness is a space right where you escape from something and you don't just escape from something that's humans deal with right you escape from slavery right a structure of sin a very specific historical formation and so and, and i think that's a lot of what is going on with the the israelites right they are they're struggling with a very specific historical formation they were slaves right and they, they're escaping but now they're also struggling and they're struggling to try and find something else all right so and so so i think in there so then i think i think that distinction is important because then god is not the ar architect of their suffering right it's structural sin that is that that the suffering is coming from and it's also in the wilderness and through a struggle against that and towards something else, you know, that, that that's where faithfulness and hope begins to work its magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, God says, okay, look, I'll solve the problem. And it's really interesting to me that God does it with a ritual that God sets up this. I mean, God could have said to Moses, look, just go five miles East. There's a pool there. You'll be fine. But instead God says, okay, you take your staff and you go in front of the people and you go up to this rock. Um, at Western Theological Seminary, where my husband is a, a professor, they teach Hebrew primarily through immersion. And, mm. and one of the ways they do that is they act out. They do reenactments of stories like this. And what happens when you do that is you, you wind up blocking the story. You mm. have to figure out where bodies go. And one of the things they figured out when they were working on this passage is that Moses is in front of the people and God stands on the rock. God says, I will be on the rock. So you have God above, you know, lifted up. Mm. And then you have Moses striking the rock. And as Christians, it's impossible not to see the you will see him lifted up, right? The mm. the resonance with the crucifixion. And actually in Corinthians, Paul actually says, you know, Jesus is the rock. Paul refers to this story and identifies the rock with Christ. So that that ritual striking is really interesting to me. Like, why is why doesn't God say, just say abracadabra or whatever? Why is it a staff, the staff that Moses used to make the Nile undrinkable back in Egypt is the one he's going to use to create or to release drinkable water here? why is it striking? You know, why is that this, this violence, this violent ritual? Um, but I think it's fascinating that it's a ritual and that it's a violent ritual. 
I don't know what to make of that. I just think it's really fascinating. One of the things that I, I want to add to the conversation um, at the point that they start to grumble um, there is a questioning of why Moses brought them out of Egypt and why Moses brought them out of slavery. So it's not just enough to say that wilderness at this point has become a place of struggle. It has become a place of struggle to the extent that the human institution of slavery is preferable, that there is a longing for the empire, that there is a longing for the at least I had X, Y, and Z from the from the hierarchical system that we were a part of um and a willingness to settle for that institution versus the struggle that creation is inviting us into um that's i mean like i i can't imagine that there these these are people with amnesia um that, that they that they've forgotten what slavery was like um, and so, uh, you know, as, as it is very much set up for us to feel, um, and, and, and Katie, I think, I think for people who are in pastoral situations, I feel like it's very easy to go, yes, these are, these are my whiny people. And why are they complaining about the color of the carpet? But it's, it's more of a, like the, the intensity of this struggle is so much that they would long for slavery. And so we have to think of the world creation as, and the struggle in which creation is inviting them to, when we know that liberation is better than enslavement, and yet the struggle feels this severe. I also just just want to very quickly note because this is uh, Wilson. You talked you touched on this for just a second that um, the other place where creation is in this passage is as they're as they're grumbling, um, they describe their community. They're talking about the men, they're talking about the women, they're talking about the children, and they're talking about the livestock. And creation is a part of their community. Um, creation is part of this. Um, this post-slavery community of of organisms that is trying to find a new place to be, and so it's interesting that um, you know now that we could we could have the conversation of like are they putting livestock on the same level as women and children? That's also worthy of of analysis, but. Um, at the very least, creation in the form of livestock are thought of as part of their community. Um, and I just want to wanted to draw attention to those two things. Mm-hmm. So as we move forward, where is where is um, how's God calling us as humans to interact with creation? based on some of the things that we hear in the story and based on some of the things that we've said already. You know, based on some of what you have just said, Derek, it, it brings out for me just how scary it is to leave behind the things that we know and that are familiar and just how entrenched we are even in our institutions and in our capitalism and how our world 
works um, and how scary it is to break free from that and attempt to live differently. And in fact, to the point of where it feels nearly impossible um, to, to do that. And so then and as they're in the space of this is impossible and we're all going to die, there's provision too, right? So that's part of the story for me as I think about what are the ways in which I can break out of the systems that are currently oppressive to the world, to creation, to people, um, and, and how fearful that is and not knowing how long it's going to take and not necessarily knowing exactly where you're going and just being lost in that wilderness space um, and, and probably... I don't know, even being the leader of, if you're being a leader in that space, hearing the people say, this is wrong. You're not doing it right. We're suffering. Clearly this was a bad choice to try to break free of these systems, um, you know, all along the way. And again, I'm struck by that. It's not a human that's going to fix it uh, in its entirety. It's, it's a human leaning on God. It's leaders leaning on God and God's the one who provides um, a solution that, and the solution isn't, we're going to go back to empire. Um, mm. The solution isn't, we're going to reinvest in capitalism or, you know, whatever. And, but it's, we're going to make it better this time. Um, you know, it's this, it's, it's the daily bread thing. So we're going to get you through this moment. Um, and it's not the, it's not the first or the last time that, that the complaints will happen. And that this sort of liminal space is is so long and so hard and, you know, not all of us will see the end of it. Um, and, you know, the invitation is go into the wilderness anyway, break free of the systems anyway. And uh, and for many of us, I think the call is, especially for those of us in pastoral relationships. And when I think of the space that the church is in, in these days, in the space of decline, and we're seeing articles come out from pastors who are totally burnt out. And we're seeing, you know, all of these pieces, it's like, nobody said it would be easy. And, um, and the suffering's part of it. And we're given this promise that there will be provision along the way. It won't be glamorous, but it'll be enough. And that there is a promised land, there is a reason, and it's and it's better than the thing we broke out of. Yeah. So maybe that'll be some light, some fire under me in my thinking of my own practices to care for creation, but also to think in community leadership and modeling those things, even as we're told that's not going to work. You can't. That doesn't really make a difference. You can't do it that way. And in you know, in particular, I think I mentioned this the last time I got to be a guest with you, Derek, but my church has chosen to sell all its building and all of its property and try to find a new way to be church with a smaller footprint. And um, with we're, we're quite literally wandering in the wilderness and how might we um, be a different kind of community that can embrace that scary space, but also love and invest in creation and invest in caring for the world and each other along the way. So all that's spinning through my mind as we embrace mm. this conversation. Wow, this is real for you, Katie. Yeah, I think so often we'd, we'd rather deal with a devil we know than trust the God who's a mystery. And this is hard. I mean, in some ways, I think, does Moses, if we could think of Moses as the church and the world is asking, you know, ask your God to fix all this. And the church is like, why is this about me? <laughs> and, you know, in fact, so often when it comes to dealing with um, climate change and the challenges of environmental justice, we are not the ones walking in front of the people. 
the the rest of the world is doing the striking of the rock or whatever and not always us we're not always the church is not always the one leading the way as moses winds up doing if only we had a magic staff man that would help so much <laughs> oh the other thing i was going to say is you know as you were saying katie it's not that God says, oh, listen, you all are thirsty. How about if you settle by this beautiful river and all is well? They're still on the way. They're still in this liminal space. They're still in process. And what they're given is enough, but it's not established um, abundance, which is what they're headed for. And even that's going to be a struggle. Um, but it's just right on the heels of that mana story it's enough for now trust me i'm leading you through this yeah when i was thinking about um how you know what it would look like to preach this which i'm not gonna have to um but but thinking about you know the kind of action out of it and also maybe even the listeners i i could imagine this being a really powerful story thinking about exactly what Katie and Deborah, and you, Derek, have been have been talking about it, just is is how hard it is in the wilderness, right? And and trying to do things uh, in alternative ways is exhausting and terrifying. And there are all kinds of rituals that permeate our lives that teach us to trust in the security that is offered by empire, right? So, and and it, and it gets into our spirits. And so it, there's, it feels very insecure to even push against that, much less be on the way out to something else. Um, so I can see this story as being very powerful for talking about, you know, what is survival intelligence? What is resiliency? Um, and there is a vision here, right, of creation becoming new creation, right, of, of the desert that empire created water coming out of it right mm -hmm. i could also see this passage though as being because I'm, I'm guessing there probably aren't though it, it sounds like you know katie has one i'm guessing a lot of congregations are not at, don't feel like they're out in the wilderness wandering they probably feel like they're terrified to start that journey mm. and and so I, I think a lot of what's i think the interpretive history of this passage then is interesting to where the, uh, the legacy, at least that I'm thinking of with this passage, right, is Isaiah, right, Isaiah 35 and 41, these images of God making springs in the desert, oh, you yeah, know, and so yeah. there's a new exodus, and so God makes creation new, and when you journey out to the desert, you will find that, and there's, and there's like a, and, and in that prophetic poetry, there is a, there's a degree of participation going on, right, so I don't think that's, the story is telling a story about Big Daddy Moses and Big, Big Daddy Sovereign God doing this stuff, but I think those are also figures for what, how, you know, there is grace and then there's the participation in grace, right? The sanctif sanctified grace of the community that does things in the world that transforms things. Mm -hmm. So I think that the prophetic imagery does that. And also I think that another legacy of this passage that Deborah brought up is Paul, right? First Corinthians 10, he mm -hmm. talks about this, but this water he talks about in terms of Eucharist, right? And so Eucharist for Paul also not this highly ritualized space outside of everyday life, but kind of counter-imperial meals happening around a table with these kind of gatherings of people trying to live a different kind of life, right? So, so I think that 
for, for those communities maybe that are afraid of entering into the wilderness, I think there's a lot of like visionary power here to think about, well, yes, it, in, it isn't easy, but this is where new creation comes from. And it comes from also the power that exists in our community doing different stuff. Yeah, that's really helpful. And the, the, the thought of leaning on, leaning on these precious sacramental rituals in these times of upheaval and change. Um, that, that's what was so cruel about the pandemic when we were quarantined and we couldn't do Eucharist together. Um, that was real starving. <laughs> I, I am really um, encouraged by this story, much like the story of Jesus with Thomas after the resurrection, where yes, the Israelites are you know well and truly scolded in this story for testing and dissatisfaction. That's what those two Hebrew words mean that they named the place testing and dissatisfaction. Not a place you want to go on vacation, I guess. Um, so that, you know, the Israelites are well and truly scolded in this passage. And yet God responds with grace, just like Jesus does with Thomas. I mean, poor Thomas, right? He wasn't there when Jesus showed up and it's legit. It seems crazy what the other disciples claim. And Jesus graciously says, you know, touch me, see. And I, I feel like this is God doing the same thing with the Israelites. Look, stop complaining, but I will answer you. I will answer you with grace, the grace of this ordinary miracle. I mean, we could figure out like what happened when Moses struck the rock or whatever, just sort of hydrologically speaking, we could figure that out, I guess, but that doesn't make it less of an ordinary miracle a miracle of grace, even, even though the Israelites demonstrated their very understandable lack of trust and complaining, God still responds with grace. I keep coming back to this idea that several of you have touched on of God didn't give them from the rock water and then like jugs and so that they had more water to like <laughs> travel with so they had travel water and then like refrigeration so they had water to keep cool <laughs> for later and freezers so that god gave them water for the moment and for that leg of the journey <laughs> and so often what we seek from creation is the abundance that will that we can store for later um and and so often what creation has to offer is the sufficiency for the day and i think part of where i i see the interaction with creation is us beginning to ask less of nature um, us beginning to um, say, yeah, though, thank you for the water from the rock. I actually wasn't expecting water from a rock. This is actually really great. And I have water that will keep me going until maybe there's another water fountain rock later on in the journey. That'd be great, too. Um, but what what develops 
sort of through the wilderness is an economy of sufficiency that like they never have basic <laughs> they really never have more than enough in fact god discourages them with the manna from storing for the future god tells them to have uh restraint you know and and to develop an idea of enoughness yeah. Um, and this is just it's 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 a it's a theme that I feel like has has come come up over and over again and, and one that I'm kind of finding is that there's a there's a defining of enough that creation actually does for us if mm-hmm. we're willing to listen and be in right relationship there. And we're usually very much in opposition to creation's definition of enough. Mm. Um, and and I I I I'm just really struck by the fact that in all of the places where you know there are so many places where scripture is calling uh, or, or where we get visions of of abundance um in scripture but but this particular formative moment for the people of israel is not one of them it is one of of continually going to god and and god saying here's what you need for today move along yeah that's the the maybe the bitter irony of naming this place testing and dissatisfaction when we should be naming every place satisfaction and contentment Mm -hmm. that's really good so where is there in in all of this that we've kind of um mined from this passage and there's a lot where is there a call to action for the church from this passage and the thoughts that we have gathered from it That, that wandering without knowing where the next sort of meal comes from, if you will, or the, the next drink comes from is just so striking to me and just so terrifying and so countercultural. You know, I think about that little um, parable of the, the squirrel and the grasshopper, you know, and the squirrel saves up the nuts for the winter and the grasshopper doesn't and the grasshopper perishes and the squirrel, you know, whatever or he comes to the squirrel and begs for whatever version of it, you know, but um it's, it's really terrifying and it's really countercultural for us to take a step out of, of the norm, to take a step out of what we've been taught culturally and institutionally and how we've taught to be successful um, and to do something different and then to trust. And I'm telling you, you've got to hold the things so loosely because there there is it isn't faith if you know how it's going to turn out, you know, Um and so with our, you know, our knees trembling, uh, which is not a place that Americans like to be, <laughs> we want to be powerful and in charge and make things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and that has woven its way into our institutions as well, especially I think as, again, we watch church decline happen, there's a sense of like grasp at everything, white knuckle it, save it up, don't waste it, don't let it go. And, uh, and in this passage, I hear an invitation to do it different you know, to trust, to step out anyway, even in spite of the fact that it looks like everything's going to end and die and we're all going to die of thirst, you know? Um, 
we we take the next right step anyway and and we don't and i also feel like there's an invitation to to like whine about it too like that's okay like, this is what we do we can whine about it a little bit we can complain god can handle it you know and um and then and, and still trust you know even as we have to express all of our big feelings that's why i tell my children you can express your big feelings <laughs> and uh you know and and get through it anyway Mm. but that's it's just so scary though and and i think one of the important parts of this story is like everybody has big feelings in the story right i mean like including god including moses and and so part of this story is it's just kind of maybe telling us that the the way you build trust the way you build faithfulness isn't always easy um it's especially because you know we're not starting from a place of clean slate, right? Like the, why do the, why do former slaves not trust? Well, part of it was probably they were slaves, right? And who do they trust? What kind of world have they lived in to cultivate trust, right? And so, and, and I mean, I, I do not want to equivocate between, you know, slavery and the condition that we all, that all of us find ourselves in. But I think that the systems that organize our lives uh, are, are set up to literally sever bonds uh, of trust, right? They're, they're made to individuate us. They're made to turn things into commodities, right? It's, 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 there's all this severing of connection that is the very logic of the systems that we serve, right? And that even that give us the food that we need for our lives. And so we're, we're all starting this situation um, traumatized, right? Or, or also just, just injured. And so it's understandable that we don't trust. It's understandable that this is terrifying, right? But the, but the way to get to trust and faithfulness and a community where, you know, you take care of each other and a relationship with creation where you take care of each other, it, 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 there's going to be some struggle there, right? But, but it's but like you all are saying, it's, it's going to take some kind of some stepping out, some risk, but also the risk is mitigated by communal sharing, right? And it's it's mitigated by the fact that creation and the creator will, will help bear it with us. Mm. And I wonder if the church can, even as we're undergoing our own struggles of change and upheaval and the breaking down of institutions and systems, many of them for good reason, um, and the experimenting with what comes next, even while we're doing that, Everybody else is doing that too. I mean, we're all going through really intense periods of change in lots and lots of ways, and that's only going to continue. And I wonder if the the church can say to others in whatever ways are appropriate, listen, we have these stories. We are trying to lean into these stories and these ritual practices because we we know from the witness of the ages that these are life-giving. And these are ways to get through wildernesses. <laughs> and would you come and join us? You know, would you would you be with us in this struggle? It's not easy for any of us, but we have these stories. We have this God. We have this faith. Um, if that's something you need, come share it with us. So I've, I've written down three things. Um, one, I had a friend who had a mantra um, 
And basically the, the mantra was, I will not long for Egypt. <laughs> and I think one of the um, calls to action here, and, and Deborah, I think you're you're right. This isn't just about the church. I think this is for a lot of our institutions. There is there is this nostalgia for a time when uh, things were were great. <laughs> And we want to make them great again. Um, and um, and what that is, is longing for Egypt. You know, what that is, is, is trying to take us backwards to um, a time when there wasn't actually freedom. And, and the, the journey towards liberation is a hard one. It is a difficult one. And in the midst of that struggle, you don't diminish the struggle but you don't sit in longing for the place of of domination and empire. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is, again, kind of coming to this moment of of what can we do for the day, um, and that the rock gave water for that particular leg of the journey. Um, you know, so often we think of solutions and we think of their longevity. And if it's not a solution that's going to have longevity, then it's not a valid solution. And some things are just to last for a season. And, you know, I, I think of this Katie, particularly in our in our denomination in the, in the PCUSA, you know, Katie's a part of this um, 1001 uh, new new worshiping communities movement from the PCUSA, and a lot of those worshiping communities that were part of that movement closed and have have ended, and I think a lot of people would look at that as like that is failure. But for the people who were a part of those worshiping communities at those times when they desperately needed, when when they had felt alienated from church, you know, the five or seven years that those worshiping communities lasted were incredibly meaningful years. And those people were getting water in the desert. And I think we, we feel like if something doesn't last forever, then somehow it failed. Um, when so often what God is calling us to are, are water and, and from the rock solutions. Um, you know, we, we have been doing a lot of work around um, community gardens and, and there's always this, there's always someone who pushes back of like, well, community gardens aren't going to solve all of the food insecurity issues. Like, no, they're not, but they're doing more than doing nothing and they're and they are for those people in those moments in those places a, a genuine solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I just don't think we don't need all of our solutions to be um permanent fixes. And that's that's part of what I'm getting as a call from the story. And then the last thing, which is a less serious thing, is um you know, just kind of thinking about God's relationship with Israel and Moses's relationship with with the people of Israel, 
and just kind of thinking about like snark as a love language <laughs> and thinking about how like in our relationships with like you know if anyone who spends any time with me and my wife recognize that like snark is very much a love language in our house <laughs> and, and that there is there is there is a little bit of like you're testing me and you're testing me only in in a way that someone I love so much can test me and like I don't think we should shy away from that way of reading these passages because this is the snark and the the complaining and the the testiness that can only happen when mm -hmm. you give someone the access to your life the vulnerability of being in a loving relationship with them mm -hmm. and so I I <laughs> I think part of the call that I'm hearing in this passage is just not to shy away from, you know, the, the most loving of, of relationships is going to have this moment of, Oh my God, why did you give me this person? Oh my, why did you give me these people? Why, why do they test me? So, um, and I just think that, you know, that's, that is part of, you know, thinking about this, this connection between suffering and love, thinking about this connection between like, you know, the the tension that comes with our vulnerability and our, our intimacy, you know. Um that's so maybe wise. We don't, maybe we don't we maybe we don't need to gloss over those things. Well, I wonder too if that's the one of the reasons for the striking. You know, it, if Moses is striking the rock on which God stands, it, it must have been, I mean, if you think about that, just staging that, right? It's a, a really disturbing image of Moses essentially striking God and God instructing him to do this. Like, yeah, I feel this, you know, you guys complaining, I, but I'm in relationship with you and I'm in it for the covenant long haul and I'm willing to take a few blows from you people and in return, give you prop, give you provision. It's an incredible image of grace if, if i can go back for a second to what you were saying like i guess your second point derek about not it not being a lasting solution which i, I think that's that's also wisdom um also i also wonder if one of the dynamics here is what what's often counted as a solution right so so I, there's i think like the 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 rock and mountain where like the water comes from is like adjacent right it's, it's part of the whole sinai kind of matrix right and so there's a, a connection that's being made between law and this kind of miracle of water renewal of creation right so there's there and so there's this pointing to this entire way of life right it's about communal equity in a lot of ways and so i i just i wonder if Part of the part of the solution or part of the action that we're being called into is to look at the things that aren't counted, right? So literally the things that are literally externalities in our accounting systems, right? So in our accounting systems, power creation and the debts created by extracting from creation, those are not included in our business accounting schemes. Also, I, I think like in the global south, a lot of times a lot of the labor of women is getting water. Right. And so and, and the labor of care and that kind of communal labor not counted. Right. But and, but so maybe some of the lasting things that come out of the state 
They don't get a well, they don't have a water system with pipes, they don't get their water every day from here on out, but they do start to build this communal power, right? Represented in the law, also represented in these, these acts of care and acts of collaboration with creation. And so maybe part of the call is to, to look, look at care, look at creation, look at these other forms of power that we can trust and that, that will sustain us. And, you know, just to tag on to that too, Wilson, this um, very unpopular for leaders to say, we don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, institution hates that. Um, people get uncomfortable. And it is one of the most faithful and authentic things that a leader can say. Um, so, you know, if the call is start the journey and God will provide. Uh Okay, so what's the five-point plan, and where does it go, and where's the next watering hole? And, okay, so how long is it going to take us to get there, and how many rations do we need, and can I fill up my camel back? Like, <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I know the next faithful step. So let's take that and, uh, and trust. That feels like a good place to end. Well, Deborah, Katie, Wilson, thank you so much for um, engaging with scripture um, and in this way um, for thinking about creation in this passage and um, for bringing your wisdom and insight um, to the Green Lectionary. Thank you all so much. Thanks. It was really fun. As always. Thanks, Derek. Good to see you guys. Thank you for joining us for the Green Lectionary podcast. This episode was produced by Derek Weston, and the music was provided by Christian McIver. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word with a good review. Leave us a comment to let us know how you've used the show and how we can make it more useful for your ministry. You can learn more about this and other programs of Creation Justice Ministries at creationjustice.org. Our story comes alive within these pages For every time and place throughout the ages God speaks and is heard And the enduring word Calls us to care for our world As we share the love that can set creation free Restoring the earth to wholeness, peace, and harmony. Let the songs of the water, land, and sky resound. Cause together we're all bound within these pages. There's always new life to be found.